0: All right, friends. We're on week number four of this series. We took a break when Dr. Fossen from the ABA came, uh, but we're on week four. and And what we're talking about today is the journey from religion to relationship. Now, before I begin, you know, we're celebrating today, this weekend, we're celebrating Victoria Day. Well, what does Victoria Day mean? Victoria Day has been observed since 1845. It was officially declared a Canadian holiday, a federal holiday in 1901, the year that Queen uh, Victoria died. The holiday was originally celebrated on May 24th, which was Queen Victoria's birthday, but then Canada changed some laws and it was going to be always on the Monday before May 25th when Queen Elizabeth II ascended to the throne. You're sitting at home going, is he just going to tell us pages and pages of, you know, Canadian uh, information trivia? Here, follow me though with me. This is important. When Queen Elizabeth II ascended to the throne in 1952, Victoria Day became her official birthday in Canada, even though her official birthday is April 21st. Interesting. And so as we, as we kind of have that in the back of our mind, really that change of date is what happens when you and I change our relationship with, with Jesus. We, we go from religious to actually having a relationship when we talk about easter we go from the death on the cross to the resurrection from the old covenant to the new covenant and so today we're going to to walk into the new testament For the last three Sundays, we've spent time in the Old Testament. Today, I'm going to cover three kind of passages of Scripture. I'm going to highlight them. I'd encourage you to read them, Luke chapter 19 through 21. There's some powerful stuff that has been happening over the last few weeks around here. I love the chance that we always have to throw ourselves into the story of God So I want you to ask yourself this simple question. And we're going to keep coming back to this simple question. What is religion? So many people, when they talk about Christianity, simply call it a religion. They say, I've got religion or, you know, I'm a religious person or I don't want to hear about Jesus because I don't like religion. A definition for religion is the conscientious following of rules that are primarily man-made or man's interpretation of what a deity has said. And guess what? That's not what Christianity is. Jesus hated the religion of his day, and one of his ultimate goals was to destroy it and replace it with a relationship. Jesus wanted it to be all about the following of a person. The great commandment confirms this, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love others as He has loved us. Religion. Religion, doing the right things. You know, that becomes an idol, where where we start to follow the right things rather than God Himself. And instead of desiring to do God's will... So that his will can be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that loving God and loving other people, that's what Christianity is all about. Have you ever noticed how important it was for Jesus to fulfill the prophecy, the law? Why did he ride into to town on a donkey? Well, Zechariah 9.9, 9, it's on your screen, it says this, Rejoice greatly! Daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. He's righteous. He's victorious. He's lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, why did Jesus cleanse the temple and say the, the words that we remember about the temple being uh, a house of prayer that has suddenly turned into a, a den of, robber, of robbers? Isaiah 56 verse 7 says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then follow that up with this in Jeremiah 7 verse 11. Has this house which bears my name, has it become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. In all, Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, that were quoted by many Old Testament scriptures. This, of course, was not by chance. It was done so that God's people at that time, who knew the scriptures, would rec- would recognize Jesus as the Messiah yet in spite of all of that the vast majority of God's people did not accept who he said he was they thought he was a fraud well why because he was they were so immersed those people were so immersed in their religion and rituals and expectations they were so focused on making money that they became blind to the truth of their own scriptures and prophecies. They had turned the the living God, the Word of God, into something that wasn't so real anymore to them. They were so concerned with doing their religion. They were so concerned with their version of church that they missed the person, the very God that they had claimed to worship. Now, The point of of this sermon series, the last four weeks and next week, is for us simply to experience ourselves in the grand story of the Bible. Because we're actually in the Bible. Here's the interesting point. 27% of the Bible is prophecy. And to this point, it's completely flawless. There is so much that's yet to be fulfilled. But so much of it's very clear and it relates to us. So why was the Passover so important to the religious leaders? Because thousands and thousands of people came to Jerusalem and it was the biggest money-making occasion in the temple. But Jesus, at the Last Supper, redeemed the Passover and made it what it was supposed to be. Well, here's the question. Has our focus become so centered on our religion. Maybe our focus has become so centered on traditions and rules and habits. Do we believe that we know the truth? And so we disregard any teaching from the Bible that might correct us. Are we doing the things the way the church and the people and leaders of our religion has told us to do it? Are we focused on Jesus and doing His will? Have we neglected the obvious teachings of the Word of God and Jesus' commands in order to simply fulfill our own desires and our own beliefs about how Christianity and the church should be done? Maybe you need to ask yourself this question. What have you become comfortable in bringing into the aspect of religion so it's not so much a relationship anymore? As we look back, most of us can't believe that the religious people of God missed that this was Jesus. We can't believe that they didn't see it was the Messiah. But guess what? Today, many still don't believe it. You'd think with our knowledge of the Scriptures and the great detail which Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, there's no way that they could miss Jesus. And missed that he was the Messiah, but they did. Scripture, we know, says that many will miss him the second time as well. They will look back and say, I should have known, I should have, I should have listened. They, know, they knew their scriptures promised a Messiah to come, but they just didn't pay attention to the details, so they missed it. They looked at Jesus and thought, that's not what we pictured why? What, maybe the question to ask is just what did he call the unbelieving religious leaders at that time? We know the word, hypocrites. Maybe some of them, those hypocrites. But I think most of them thought they were doing what God wanted him to, wanted them to do. Jesus came to earth to correct them so they could be saved and they rejected his teaching because of their own greed and pride. If we combine Jesus' teaching here with James and John's letters, we find that it's not people who say, I have faith. It's not people who, who do what their, religious, their religion tells them to do. It's those who do the will of God that are saved. Jesus is teaching that only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught that repentance was a key part of that. Just about every book of the New Testament, never mind the old, has warnings about what is required for us to be saved and to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize that these calls to obey Jesus' teaching are actually prophecy? Because they're telling us what will happen to those who do it and those who don't do the will of God. Just like in the Old Testament, where all the judgments came true after a time of warning. What is Jesus trying to tell us? What is God's primary goal in relation to us as created humans? Think back to the garden. In the beginning, he walked and talked with humans who then disobeyed, and then they didn't have eternal life in paradise with him. At the end, in Revelation, we see that people again will live in paradise with him for eternity. I think that the simple realization is this, that he wants, God desires to have a living relationship with us. It's like this, humans choose to leave home and try to do it on their own. And of course, this caused death and all the problems we see in the world today. God gave us many opportunities to come home. He made a final way for us to come home through Jesus. But humans, us, still choose to make up our own religion and forsake that relationship with God. Well, why didn't God want us to know good and evil? Perhaps it's what we hear in Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at that time. The Lord, hear these words, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I'm going to wipe out from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. Then this cool verse in verse 8. But Noah found favor. Or translate it like this. But Noah actually changed the heart of God. Pretty powerful understanding there. God knew what would happen if humans came to know good and evil. That they would always be inclined. We'd always choose evil. But he wanted to provide to creation that had everything, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God said to us, trust me, I've given you everything, but it would be best for you children to avoid that tree because there's a consequence that I can't stop if you eat from it. That consequence is death or a severing of my relationship with you because you will then see yourself as naked. And as you see yourself naked, you will start to focus just on yourself. It's basically like the dad saying to his destructive child, I have no choice but to kick you out if you continue to do what you're doing. But that's not what I want. So please listen to me and do what I say. It's for your own good. Well, fast track that story from Genesis several thousand years later. We see the results and we still today in 2021 want to do it our own way. And the outcome of sin and disobedience is still death. It's still separation from God. That tree in the garden became the first idol, which is something that you and I choose over and over and over above God. Do you remember that story about the chief priests who tried to To catch Jesus with a tough question, it's found in Luke chapter 20, verse 20. They ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus knows they're being crafty, so he says, yeah, show me a coin. What image and inscription is on that coin? Well, the Pharisees respond, it's Caesar's images and his inscription is on that coin then Jesus' answer is really, really important. And I think it's a lot deeper than most of us realize. He says this, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. and Give to God what is God. Now, on the surface, we would look at that and see that it's a simple, like, it's a simple lesson. What Jesus is saying is submit to your rulers as long as it doesn't go against God's will. We might also surmise that according to their laws we're to pay taxes and we are to pay a tithe to God. But I want you to think about it differently this morning. The question become, who is Caesar? And who is God? And therefore, what rightfully belongs to each of them? Caesar is a false god that people are to worship. Have you ever noticed that Jesus talks about money more than any other thing? Even more than heaven. You want to notice what the primary theme is in those chapters in Luke chapter 19 through 21? It's all about money. Yeah, there's other themes that are in there. There's the triumphal entry. There's his authority, the destruction of of Jerusalem. But we see stories of Zacchaeus, the ten minas, cleansing the temple, overturning the money tables, the parable of the vineyard owner, which is a story about greed, the story that we just talked about, about the coin and who do you give it to. And then we end with the widow's little gift. In three chapters in Luke, six stories about money and greed with a little intermission about the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the authority of Jesus as the Messiah. All of it finishes off with the prophecy of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The end of the age. The coming of Jesus. Now in those chapters, where have we as the church traditionally focused our attention? Do we have a temple cleansing Sunday? I don't think so. Do we have a giving half of my possessions away Sunday? Nope. How about a greed Sunday? Nope. How about a destruction and the, age, and the end of the age Sunday? Nope. How about a second coming Sunday? Nope. Guess what we have? Palm Sunday. Where our friend Jesus gently rides into town on a donkey amidst the, the people praising and celebrating a completely false no, notion of the Messiah. I bet if we were there, you could see it on Jesus' face as he rode in. Jesus was doing anything but celebrating that day. He was a dead man riding and he knew it. This was a day of complete opposites. The demonstration of light and darkness. That week was going to culminate in Jesus' crucifixion, but the people who didn't know that were having a party. It's a day of great sadness, while for Jesus, while everyone's celebrating It's a day where Jesus is really hurting. He's weeping over Jerusalem because Jesus was coming in judgment. The people are deceived. Jesus saw the hopelessness of the situation and the fact that he had to go through with what he was being sent to do because it was too far gone. He saw that people were consumed by the things of this world, especially money. And there was no turning back. Notice what he didn't talk about. He didn't talk about his death. Nobody, including his disciples, knew that yet. Yet in chapter 21, he talks about his coming back as if he's already gone. Many people are happy to see Jesus ride in. But they're terribly misled thinking he is coming to conquer in an earthly manner. That the kingdom of this world is not what he's going to be a part of. So how does this all relate to Jesus coming in with that triumphal entry on Palm Sunday? Jesus was riding into Jerusalem as the king of kings and the high priest. Ideally, the high priests and kings and emperors would have simply handed everything over to him the moment he rode into the town as God the Messiah. But what Jesus found was that the people, rather than having a relationship with God and following his greatest law to love God above all and to love others, they were living by their own desires. They were focused on political and economic structures. They were focused on the empire that they were living under. And they had created a man-made religion bound by laws, not bound by love. The religion that the Jewish people had was no different than any other pagan religion. Except they had a symbolic God that looked a lot like the God we worship. But they worshipped God the same way the pagan cultures did. It was idolatry and making sacrifices to a God who was not real to them. They worshipped the law. They worshipped the temple. They worshipped the Ark of the Covenant. They worshipped their burnt offerings and had even turned their sacrifices into a money-making business. And Jesus was appalled and saddened. And I believe it was the very first time that he knew he had to go through with this sacrifice. There was no hope for repentance. The people went out to the city to meet Jesus and throw their cloaks and palm branches down in front of him and his donkey. They thought they were going out to accompany the, the new everlasting king, but this time was not about a reign. This time was about. God coming to save so that there could be someone to reign over with when he finally comes to set up his eternal kingdom. But the book of Revelation actually tells us it will happen exactly the same way he does come to reign forever on the earth. It says that you and I will rise to meet him in the air and will accompany him in the new Jerusalem. The word used to meet him Is the same one that represents this going out to meet royalty and accompany them into the city. The next time that we do this, the next time we have Palm Sunday, is when we as believers have conquered the world and its idols. It's when our new eternal bodies and we'll live with Jesus forever. We know this because he was crucified at the end of that week. He rose from the dead and ascended to the Father to begin preparing that eternal kingdom. And just as he left behind the early disciples to reach and teach people about him, he calls us to teach others to repent and turn, to walk away from the world to come out of Babylon and Rome and turn to him. He leaves us here after we're saved to do the same thing because Jesus must have a relationship with us before we can enter his kingdom. How about these famous words from Matthew 7? They're going to be on your screen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, talk, proclaim your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I'll say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Have you ever found it interesting that two of the three major Christian holidays celebrate what were the absolute worst times in Jesus' life? But they're great for us. Easter is great for Jesus, but Christmas and Good Friday were awful for him. He had to leave heaven and become an earthbound human at Christmas And well, Good Friday was anything but good for him. It reminds me, Christians are pretty self-centered. I find myself saying this a lot, well, what has Jesus done for me lately? And it's wonderful that he's done those things in the past for me, but I would be happy if Jesus would do more. We'd be happy if our friend was suddenly not homeless, not humiliated, not tortured, but the king. Salvation comes to the human heart. Not because of religion. Not like those Pharisees and Sadducees, but as a result of a relationship. A true living relationship with Jesus brings about a great salvation that no amount of religion could ever do. So let me wrap this up for us. Okay, here's three things. When Jesus enters my life, forgiveness comes to me because he's my high priest. The Sadducees were the priestly party of Jesus' day. It was the high priest's job to offer sacrifices that brought forgiveness and cleansing for the people of God. Jesus offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. When Jesus comes into yours and my life, he brings forgiveness and cleansing. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize, emphasize, wow, emphasize, there we go, with our weakness. We don't have that. We have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, and he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace, the altar, with confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, what's the second thing? Here's the second thing. When Jesus enters my life, righteousness comes to me because he, God, is the fulfillment of the law. The Pharisees relied on doing religious things, doing it dutifully, on adherence to every piece of the law of Moses. And they thought, if I just obey the rules, God will love me more. But until Jesus, not one human being had succeeded in that endeavor because the law was not given to make us righteous. The law was given to show us our sin. It was put in place to lead us to Christ, to show us that we need Jesus Jesus is that fulfillment of the law. In Matthew 5, 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. So when Jesus comes into your life, he brings righteousness. And here's the third one. When Jesus enters my life, a new power Comes to me because he is my king. A few days after entering the city as a king, Jesus would, uh, of course, be placed on trial and shuttered between, shuttled between King Herod and Pilate, those two representatives of the Roman Empire, those earthly kings who had power to pardon Jesus or sentence Jesus were confounded by him. They seemed powerless. They didn't know what to do. Pilate even went through the the theater of of washing his hands, saying, I found no fault with Jesus. But he still handed him over to be crucified. Ironically, the true king, the true power, stood before him. Jesus is the king of kings. That is why after Jesus had died and rose from the dead, his closest followers asked Jesus, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are you going to take your throne and exert all your power? And of course, we get to be a part of it. Jesus answered this, you guys will receive power. But it wasn't a political power. It wasn't a power that was going to end. It was a power of a different kind. But it was incredibly real. Here's the power that Jesus gave to you. He gave you the power to heal. He gave you the power to turn weakness to strength. He gave you the power to resist temptation. He gave you the power to conquer evil. He gave you the power to speak boldly. He gave you the power to endure persecution. So when Jesus comes into yours and my life, he brings a new power. I want you to remember this this week. Forgiveness and cleansing, righteousness and power comes as a result of a relationship, not a religion. It comes when you allow Jesus to enter into your, into your heart. So today... This morning, do you want a religion or do you want a relationship? Let's pray. God, I pray that the words that I uttered would be words that are understood by my friends. God, thank you that you take us from all these these different paradigms that we've been studying from slavery to freedom today from religion to relationship. For some of my friends who haven't accepted you as their personal Lord and Savior, may you speak boldly to them. For us that, that have had this relationship with you, may we, may we put effort into that relationship. May it not turn into a religion. May it not be about traditions or rules or rituals. May it be about a a, a son, came down from heaven to sacrifice so much so that we could do what we're doing today. Lord, as my friends go into this week, may you give them the the perseverance to endure. May you lift up their weary heads. May they get a glimpse of what you're doing in their life. Lord, we love you and adore you. We ask all these things in your most powerful name. Amen and amen.